Hey, hey. This is Coach Hey, and welcome to the July 10th edition. So first up, last week, I published a post about three odd months of uh, my learnings with the Indian clubs and specifically how they complemented my kettlebell training, particularly the kettlebell swing. I much later realized that the videos related to the post were not embedded properly. My apologies for that. That's been fixed. I've shared a link in this and I have put the uh, videos at the bottom as well. Do check it out. I would love to hear your feedback from there. Now, this week's primary piece is about a key factor in picking up and sticking to new habits and routines. Now, if you've been unaware that there is an amazing book called Atomic Habits, you should totally, totally check it out. It's by James Clear and truly learn about habits. It's just a wonderfully written book. My piece is about just one or two things that I've seen in my experience about why things stick. So let's get to it. Breaking old patterns and habits and creating new ones is absolutely essential to keep improving. A couple of weeks back, I wrote about crafting a new routine to delay my morning coffee. Now, for the non-coffee drinkers, that might, this might seem, well, kind of trivial, but to a coffee drinker, especially one who is just dependent on it as a crutch, you want to just wake up and have that coffee because it's just associated with you actually waking up. So to delay my morning coffee or to reduce my coffee consumption, science played a key role. I realized that, that the key to waking up was to raise the internal body temperature and not necessarily the caffeine because the caffeine takes a while to get into your system. So as soon as I woke up, hot water, just any warm fluid and Cupping my hands around the hot mug, both of these helped in immediately raising body temperature. I also realized that I needed to give some time for adenosine, a component that uh, tells you when to go to sleep, blah, blah, blah. It's just one of the many things floating around in our body. So only if adenosine is cleared will we truly not have a crash later in the day? Because what happens, caffeine goes in and then when it plugs into the same place, uh, into the receptors that adenosine will go to, well, eventually the caffeine goes away and then the bunch of adenosine go in there and you have a crash. So you want to wait for a little bit of time for the adenosine to clear from the system. So which is why... By delaying the coffee, you actually avoid a mid-afternoon crash. So hot water and then getting out and getting some sunlight because sunlight helps with the waking up process. And I threw in walking the dog or jumping rope or doing some crawls in the sun. And it was step-by-step step to adding a 45 to 60-minute delay 
after the coffee. Now, compared to starting a fitness routine from scratch, delaying the morning coffee is relatively easier. Even though there's enough and more science about why you need daily activity or why you need to build muscle or to strength train, there are just a lot more hurdles to figure out and to contextualize. One simple factor that helps is if it is fun. For example, back in 2007, I found CrossFit and I found it exhilarating. Especially when you compare the other experience of going to a gym littered with machines, it was just mind-numbingly boring. It was easy to go and work out at CrossFit. I literally would jump out of bed and start thinking about how much fun I was going to have at San Francisco CrossFit. I would go to bed the previous night excited like a little kid about the next morning. Now, this fueled my first three months. And by then, I had seen enough improvements in my general fitness. I had integrated into the community and it was part of my routine. So it was just so possible simply because it was fun. But not all new habits are fun. Some are awkward and disruptive. The example of the morning coffee. It's very disruptive. It's very, very hard for, for, a, for a coffee drinker who has coffee within the first five, 10 minutes of waking up to do that. Other similar examples, say skipping sugar or alcohol for a month, it puts a crimp on your social interactions, right? Or skipping watching TV for a few weeks. Or a new habit that I am trialing out, eating dinner three hours before bed. All of these, while much simpler than starting to go to the gym, well, are awkward and disruptive. But the one common factor it all comes down to is, well, results. If we see results, then the habit or routine sticks. If you don't see results, then the habit fails. Now, results can mean a plethora of things. In a fitness habit, results might be weight loss or strength gain, or it could be sleeping better or having more energy or becoming more self-confident or just being in a positive energy environment. It could be anything. It could be a bunch of these things. But if the results don't, exist, the results don't come, it is impossible to stick to it. And that's a brutally simple way of, hey, should I do this or not? Now, the other thing is, when we do see results, now will this habit stick forever? Well, it's funny how this works, but many times something works so well that we stop doing it. Sounds contradictory, but think about it. You will have an example in your life. The habit works so well that you have a paradigm shift. And 
in a few months, you are mentally in a new place and you forget what got you to that place. You get cocky or distracted or you're now capable of doing more and so you jump on to something else. I'll give you an example. Training three days of the week and playing one or two days was a simple routine that worked for me. I kept seeing results. I kept improving uh, the sport I was playing. Uh, I kept getting stronger. I was not spending ridiculous amounts of time at the gym. I was not uh, having any issues recovering. None of it. But I got so much fitter than what I expected that I started training six days of the week. And well, recovery became hard. I didn't have enough time to play sport. I didn't have enough time uh, to do other things because the gym was taking seven, eight hours of my week. So a new routine that worked and I got overexcited and I overindulged. So the fix is simple. Just get back to what worked for you. Just start again especially for any fundamental or foundational stuff. Like to me, fitness is a keystone habit. Strength training is my keystone habit. A lot of my routine is built around it. If I get distracted and move away and do something else, let's say even something as fun as playing badminton. Let's, play, let's say I play six days of badminton. Sooner or later, I know many of my other lifestyle decisions will suffer. So start again, but at the same time, stop when it stops working for you. You totally must. It was a tool for a specific job. You need to stop doing something when it no longer works for you. You move on to a different tool. For example, CrossFit was a tool for a couple of years. And it led me to kettlebell training, which has been the mainstay of my fitness for a decade and more. Now, this need not be the case for you or even for me, right? It was just, it just happened that kettlebell training stuck because it connected at a deeper level. But CrossFit for a couple of years, barbell training for a couple of years, something else for a couple of years, absolutely fine. Again, what you need to remember is that sticking to something simply out of habit or nostalgia is unnecessary. Your loyalty is to yourself. So let's just quickly summarize. To craft a new routine, having fun is useful. So where possible, start there. Science helps. The delayed coffee example, you saw that how just learning simple science helped. Because if I was feeling foggy in the morning, then I would inevitably slip and go back to the morning coffee. But hot water, sunlight, all of this helped in me realizing, ah, okay, I am waking up, right? So science helps, but it all comes down to results. If you see results, again, which can be a umpteen number of things, you will stick to it. And just be mindful that you will stop doing something because it works so well for you. And also be aware that other times you will keep doing something long after its expiry date. When in doubt, just start again. Well, that's the first piece. 
I'd like to talk about the Indian clubs as well. So here we go. What did training with Indian clubs and how did it complement my kettlebell training? Now the Indian club has been around for years and years, but hey, everything old is new again. It has been um, used in Persia and India. It was used, uh, taken to the West by British soldiers who saw the crazy fitness level of Indian soldiers who used the clubs to train. Now, the term club is an oversimplification. There are various versions from very light, like half a kilo uh, to extremely heavy 30 odd kilos. Yeah, and all of the variants help you do different different things. Now, this is not a deep dive into clubs as I know just a few basics. Been practicing them for three or maybe now four months. But I am an expert in kettlebells and in movement. And I've realized the complementary nature of the club to my kettlebell practice, particularly the kettlebell swing. So since you probably are into kettlebells as well, I thought I would share this. Now, why did I pick clubs? Well, they've been around forever. I mean, growing up in Tamil Nadu, you hear about it, the Karlakata and the Silambam. But it comes down to me. I like to play. I like to learn new things. And ever since I stopped playing Ultimate, because it stopped working for me a few years ago, there was a huge gap in my training routine. My training plans were solid, but I was not having enough play in them. So after my usual bout of overthinking and analysis, I settled on the club. But I didn't know anything about it. So I checked out a couple of videos. And by couple, I mean just two. So there's a really old one with uh, Brett Jones and Gray Cook, where they use very light ones for speed training. And I also found a series of videos by Chip Conrad. He uses heavier clubs. So this goes into grip work and a little bit of strengthish work. So I got both. I got a light one and a buddy of mine helped make a couple of heavy ones because I didn't realize that they were uh, being sold on Amazon and in India. So uh, my friend got two stout pipes and figured out how to uh, weld them together and made uh, a three kilo and a five kilo one for me. So I was just ready to play. So no pressure, no outcomes, but simply spending about 45 minutes, three times a week. So for the first six weeks, I strictly followed the textbook. Spent time with the light clubs, working on the basic patterns. The goal was, well, just not to hit myself in the head and, you know, knock myself out. I wrote all my learnings in my training journal. And slowly, as I learned a few more movements, especially from uh, Chip Conrad, I realized there was a lot of overlap. Now, my primary training plan is kettlebell ballistics, uh, swings and snatches, three days of the week. So what did I learn? 
now this uh, this does require uh, more than I mean a little bit of knowledge of kettlebell training, especially the kettlebell swing. Okay, so if you've never done the kettlebell swing, this will not be relevant to you at all. So the first factor that I saw that it added a lot to is the grip. Well, the grip is important in kettlebell ballistics because your grip, especially your forearm and grip strength, will give out over long sets or a long training um, uh, session because you fail to understand what tension and relaxation means. Now, the bell is constantly wanting to fly away from you up top and at the bottom. You overgrip it. You will tire out soon. You undergrip it. It will pull and wear you out. So you need to have that right thing. And the grip for the club is relatively awkward. The bottom of the club where your pinky goes around has a slight bulge. And you should maintain a reasonably tight grip throughout. So. You're spending 30 minutes. And of course, I am nowhere near working the entire 30. But maybe the first day I work 15 and then I'm slowly working up to the 20, 25 minute mark or whatever. It is a lot of grip work. So just catching the club or holding it upright or parallel to the floor or perpendicular to the floor, whatever it is, just the amount of grip work, particularly the part of the grip, which we don't use much, which is the pinky and the ring finger has just added so much to my kettlebell work, not just my swings, but even my, uh, the grinds, the press and stuff. And the second thing is in patterning and recovery. Because of its light nature, and I'm referring to even the three kilo or the five kilo, which are heavyish clubs, especially for a beginner like me, but compared to the kettlebell swing, which you know I do from anywhere from 24 to uh, uh, 40 kilos, this is light. So the light club allows me to do hundreds of reps of the swing, which greatly aids my recovery, right? Because I'm just doing the hinge pattern again and again. And it allows me to repattern the swing or clean or snatch. So zero soreness and improving my pattern in the kettlebell swing was a simple, simple win. Now the third thing, timing. This is one of the hardest skills to learn in the swing. Most beginners tend to hinge too early. So you snap the hip, the bell floats, and as soon as the bell starts to come down, you unlock your hip. Now that's wrong. You want to play chicken with the kettlebell. You want to wait for as long as you can for the kettlebell to just naturally float back down, float back down, float back down, and it's almost going to hit you. It won't, but it's almost going to hit you and you hinge back. That's the ideal way. 
So with the club, you must get your timing right. You have to wait for the club to pass midline. And then you hinge back. You hinge too early, especially with the right length of club, the club will hit the floor. So it gives you immediate feedback if you are hinging early. And you can't hinge late because, well, the club guides you. So figuring out timing, as I mentioned, it's part of patterning, yes, but specifically timing was so easy and obvious to do with the club. And the instant feedback helps. The fourth thing, the shrug and the anti-shrug. So we all have a tendency because you know we have desk jobs, we sit with forward rounded shoulders, we don't breathe with our diaphragm. Our neck and upper trap area is a little overactive always. So you need to learn to anti-shrug. So what, what does that mean? Well, shrug your shoulders, right? Like try to get your shoulders to touch your ears. This is the up position. Now just relax. This is the neutral position. Now do the opposite. Go down. That's the anti-shrug. Now the anti-shrug is not just, again, for kettlebell ballistics, but for, well, most things. And the club allows you to just practice this either in the catch in the grip position or while you are swinging it. It just naturally allows you to relax because the load is much lighter and you're not doing fast reps. You're able to stop a rep. You're able to fix it. So I found that working the anti-shrug and paying attention, being aware of when I was shrugging was much easier to do with the that. The fifth one, the lockout. This was my biggest, biggest, biggest learning. There's this concept that Powell refers to, comes from karate, called kaim. Now you hear this when they yell kiai, or oh, it's that last part of the punch where it really, really accelerates and they tense up and they deliver that force. Now the top of the swing involves a crisp finish, a powerful standing plank. In Simple and Sinister, Powell uses the example of a flip book. You know, you remember those things, right? You just do and you flip through the book and there's a small um, uh, animation of sorts that's going. So imagine you have a 100-page flip book, obviously one image per page. And as you flip through the book, it goes from the bottom of the swing to the top of the swing. Now, the inexperienced athlete starts tensing rather early, probably around page 50. Or maybe even earlier. If you are too tense at the bottom of the swing, you're not going to get enough power output. There needs to be sufficient amount of relaxation involved or rather, as Coach Dan John puts it, you need to be at a tension level of 4 out of 10 to deliver an explosive output. 
So in the beginning, you start tensing way too early. But as you get better, you start to get tense only around, say, page 90 or even page 95. On the lockout, say the 100th page is every bit of you below the neck in a standing heart style plank. Your feet are rooted into the floor. Your kneecaps are pulled up. Your glutes are tight. Lats are on. Armpits are screwed in. Anti-shrug. Your abs, your entire pillar is braced. Now, while you do some of these throughout the movement, for example, rooting, you've got to stay rooted. They come to a crescendo. They come to a perfect lockout at the top of the swing. Now, again, there's a lot of confusing parts about the swing because when you snap your hips, which is the primary work of the swing, we all tend to get too tense. But it's just your bottom half zipping up. There's still a little bit of time as the bell floats up, 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 you know, and becomes an extension of your arm at the shoulder level. Now, that's where you actually fully tense up. But we all start tensing up from the hip snap. So, what the Indian club taught me was, well, backswing, yeah, pretty relaxed. And then you hinge forward and the club floats. And then I catch the club. You know, the club is pointing up. That is the top of the swing. That extra bit of tension required to stop the club for a millisecond. Or rather, stop the club for a second or two even, which is possible with the club and not with the bell, was just phenomenal because I could see, okay, too tight, too early, or not tight enough at the top, and what is my gap? And slowly, just hundreds and hundreds of reps, I'm able to see when to tighten up, what to tighten up, and what, how to ratchet up my tension level as late as possible. Almost there. The sixth learning, the weight shift at the bottom. There's a subtle weight shift that happens. You start off with your weight being perfectly balanced over your foot. As the bell swings down and behind you, well, the center of gravity of the system, your body and the bell, well, it's now going a little behind. So there is a shift towards your heel. Say from 50-50, front of the foot to the back of the foot, it's now 35-65. Oh, your feet and toes should still be on the floor. The shift is just subtle. Now, it's hard to do this because many times we lose our toes or sometimes we just are not comfortable letting this heel shift happen. So we... Uh, drop our shoulders forward. A lot of compensations happen. All of this, which you can understand only if you watch your videos closely. With the clubs, it becomes simple to feel the heel shift because the club is pretty long. So the arm and the club form, one, a perfect line in line with your uh, shoulder to hip. And because of its length, it just subtly accentuates that weight shift. 
it gives you that little bit extra time and that little bit extra pull even though the load is very light it drags that movement for half a second extra that gives you enough time to feel and add oh, okay just lean into that heel shift and in addition my final learning in addition to the weight shift the arms and shoulders move into a good position now the anti shrug apply is not just at the bottom but not uh, not just at the top but at the bottom as well with the kettlebell beginners tend to overgrip or not allow that movement to happen because it's just too fast but here the movement is just a tad slower tad longer which allows you to just anti shrug and let that arm reach back while the chest reaches forward so you are really stretching the chest away and forward and the arm letting it just go behind you now this loads you up for your next swing really really well so those are my seven learnings for the indian club and into the kettlebell swing for those of you who practice with kettlebells i hope you find this uh, relevant so if you play around yeah the eighth probably most important learning for me though as is that it's been a lot of fun to play and learn a new skill and simply fascinating to see the complementary nature of it with my kettlebell work you know after a decade and a bit more of working on the kettlebell swing it's been awesome to see that the club has allowed me to deepen my learnings and learn the nuances in a very same but different fashion so i hope to keep this going and uh, maybe in a few months or year uh, i'll share share a little bit more anywho that's that for this week thanks for listening you have a great sunday and a great week ahead this is coach a signing off bye bye